Good morning. Can you hear me? Great. If we can get the slides up for my presentation, that'd be great. Thank you. Just need to get the first slide. There we go. It's great to have an opportunity to share with you. I've shared a couple of times over the last uh, number of years briefly with you, uh, more particularly in the context of uh, the work that we're involved with in Tanzania and around the world with Under the Same Sun, the uh, organization that uh, we started six years back. And so many of you are familiar with that. And I've had opportunities briefly to share about that in different contexts. I've talked with you about that. Uh, and certainly aspects of that will come up as... Uh, references in this talk today, but today I come to you in a different capacity to share the Word of God with you. And some of you know this and some of you may not, that was one of the careers that I had. Uh, I was in the ministry for 10 years, I pastored two different churches uh, in uh, Manitoba and uh, <clears throat> with a Baptist Union of Western Canada, now the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada, and was ordained with them, I was in denominational leadership, and then moved from that uh, career into a career in business for a long, long time. And then now I'm both straddling the world of business and ministry through this work we do with Under the Same Sun. So this is kind of bringing me full circle back to the ministry piece. Uh, I said uh, to Debbie that this was the first time since I left pastoral church ministry that I've been preaching the word in North America. And I left the pastoral ministry many years ago. Uh, and I've spoken the word many times in Tanzania and churches of various denominations, uh, but never in North America. So this is a, a kind of a different experience for me and uh, one that uh, I'm hoping God will see fit to use to bless you today and to bless all of us together in this process. Um, Brad was reaching out about uh, opportunities to speak, and I told him I'd be happy to, to minister in that way should he feel a need or desire, and I was given an opportunity to uh, select from a few passages in First Thessalonians. And I largely, what drove, uh, which Sunday I spoke on was my calendar availability, because as many of you know, I travel a lot and have a lot on the go, so I looked at my calendar and thought, okay, this is a Sunday that I could see myself speaking. And I picked up First Thessalonians 4. And as we get into the passage, we'll see that this was not an easy one. Uh, it's not, a, it's not a, a simple passage, and it's not one that's without controversy or confusion. So um, <clears throat> I'll be giving Brad a hard time about that a little later in the message, about the, the, the messages he seems to always wiggle out of. I know Keith made some comments about that, that certain topics other people end up speaking on, it seems quite coincidentally. Um, but that'll come up, as you'll see what I mean when we get into First Thessalonians 4 uh, and some of the topics that come up in verses 3 and onward. Nonetheless, I've titled my thoughts this morning, The Challenges of Being an Oddball. Anybody here ever, uh, perhaps in your growing up years, feel like an oddball? You know, I won't, I won't uh, indict you here, don't worry. You can admit to it freely that you're among friends here. Um, maybe some of you still feel like an oddball. You don't have to raise your hands about that one. You can if you want. Um, maybe some of you never stop feeling like an oddball. Um, but many people, for a variety of reasons in their growing up years, can identify with that. Maybe you were the new kid on the block. Maybe you looked different. Maybe it was your racial difference. Maybe you wore glasses. Maybe your style. Maybe you were a geek. Maybe you were whatever. It could be 101 reasons why, in your growing up years, you felt like an oddball. Maybe the neighborhood you lived in, the socioeconomic background you came from. But somehow you felt different than the majority of people around you. Uh, and that's a, a feeling many people can identify with at, at some juncture, particularly in the early years. <clears throat> this picture here uh, was a picture of my grade 3 class. I lived in a neighborhood of Montreal that was very low income, NDG, uh, which uh, uh, it stands for Notre Dame de Grasse, or as it is commonly known to this day, no darn good. Um, it's, it was a rough neighborhood. 
gunshots were not an uncommon sound where I was born and raised, and uh, gangs and, and uh, poverty and uh, all of the stuff that comes with that were not uncommon in the apartment, low rental apartments I called home. Uh, you can't tell that in this picture because everyone's well presented for picture day, of course. Uh, but these kids came from NDG, and this was my grade three class. And so you can see, I'm probably, I bet you any money, nobody here is having a hard time figuring out which one's me. <laughs> so the fact that you're not having a hard time figuring out which one is me goes to my point. Guess who felt like the oddball in that picture? That wasn't the only Caucasian kid. That's not what made me the oddball. There's lots of those. You can see some ethnic diversity represented in the photograph. Our, our neighborhood was very ethnically diverse. But what you can see is that there's only one kid with hair quite that white, isn't there? And that's me. Uh, as my school years developed, I uh, went to a high school later on. I was, don't forget, I was living in inner city Montreal, a huge city. Uh, and later on in my high school years, I went to a high school that had 2,700 kids in it. Uh, and in that school, I was the only kid with this color hair. So all of my life, I always knew there was something different about me. Not only did I know, but I was frequently reminded of it. Uh, freak, whitey, snow white, uh, ghost, uh, Casper. Uh, many of you who uh, made my age remember the commercials for the gar garbage bags, Man from Glad. Um, it, it's funny now, but it wasn't funny then for me to hear it as a kid. The guy with the white suit, the white shoes, and the bright white hair. Um, and so, you know, comments like, you don't need to dress up on Halloween, you already look like a ghost, all of this kind of stuff, being visually impaired, excluded from sports teams, it was tough. Frankly, most of my, uh, I was in a fully integrated school, so no other disabled kids in my schools, no kids with visual impairment except for me. Um, I always looked different, and I was always singled out for being different. And so I always felt like an oddball, um, largely because of my physical, physical appearance in those days. And I guess also, in my particular case, my family also had a number of challenges. Uh, my mom suffered with mental illness her whole life and uh, had great difficulty, which involved sometimes frequent hospitalization, suicide attempts. So we had a difficult ho home life. And so th that, in concert with being in this sort of low-end, uh, low-income neighborhood and this white hair, always made me feel I certainly was not part of the mainstream that you'd see on TV. I wasn't part of the Leave it to Beaver crowd. L blending in was never really an option for me, you know. Uh, lest I were to don a wig and uh, lots of makeup, um, you know, which is not, not commonplace for 8- and 10-year-old boys, blending in was not really an option. So when you don't get the chance to blend in, even if you want to, it teaches you a few things about yourself and about the world around you and about life, which we'll touch on briefly in this passage. And I use this illustration today. Maybe take the next slide, please. Uh, anybody knows who this guy is? Who is he? What's his name? Anybody see the movie Da Vinci Code? Silas. Silas the albino. Um, and this is the trope that Hollywood uses to depict persons with albinism. In every single movie, there's over 60 that have been depicted by Hollywood in the last 30-odd years. Showing a person with albinism, two things are true. The character doesn't have the condition, ever. They make people who don't have albinism try and look like they do by wearing red contact lenses, white wigs, powder makeup. And they make them evil. So he's the, the uh, just like there's a variety of Hollywood uh, tropes, they're called. One of them is the evil albino. So here's Silas. He's this monk. He's in uh, this order of monks. You know, I'm not going to go through the whole movie. Some of you have seen it. But nonetheless, he's the evil albino. He's an assassin. He's a bit mentally deranged. He's evil. He is the classic evil albino trope. Um, and you can see uh, that's the, uh, the depiction they give. So he clearly was, in this film, the oddball, right? Uh, anybody who's seen The Da Vinci Code remembers him. I could go on about many, many other films that have the same uh, character of prisons with albinism. 
But when you're raised with this genetic condition, as I was, you get the sense of being an oddball. <clears throat> Maybe go to the next slide. And so today, I decided to use this personal life experience of always feeling odd, having a condition that's really rare. Any of you have ever gone to a hockey game or an event at Rogers Arena, it holds around 18,500 people. The uh, genetic occurrence of this condition that I have is of a 1 in 17 to 1 in 20,000 in North America and Europe. So uh, you would need to know the number of people in Rogers Arena in your social circles to know some with albinism. So how many of you have a social network of about 20,000 people? Now I know if you're on Facebook you might, but you know, you might have 20,000 friends, we'll use that word loosely. Um, but most of you don't really have 20,000 real friends, I wouldn't think. I mean, maybe some of you are that popular, but you'd have to be really popular. So the point here is that to get someone who looked like me, I would need to go into Rogers Arena and then there would be one of me. Think about that. When people talk about minorities, they talk about groups of people that represent 10 to 20% of the population and label it a minority in a given community, or 5% of the population. It's a fraction of fraction of a fraction of a fraction of 1%. That's a minority, right? And so being part of this minority group has been something God has brought to my mind several times over the last several years about my identity in Christ and what it means for me to be a follower. And I've actually been, over the last several years, probably the last decade of my life, been able to finally give thanks to God for creating me with this in a whole variety of ways, and for a whole variety of reasons. One, it gave birth to the ministry I'm now involved in, and two, it's helped me get settled with my identity in Christ because I was never afforded the opportunity to blend in. Believe me, I desperately wanted it. I didn't want to look different. I didn't want to be called names. I didn't want to be gawked at or stared at or looked at differently. I didn't like it. It wasn't fun. I wish I could undo it and not make it not be the case. But that wasn't on the table. I couldn't undo it, right? And so I was forced to come to grips with the fact that everyone regarded me differently. And that's been a whole journey for me. And, but in the latter part of my life, probably the last 15 or 20 years, I've made a great deal of peace with that. And it's actually helped me understand. And I've thanked God for it because gaining acceptance for how I am, inherently who I am, and how others will regard me at times as different or other has given me a deep spiritual understanding of a comfort level we as believers, I will propose, need to get clear with our identity in Christ as over against the culture around us. We try and blend in too much. We don't have enough comfort with being the oddballs because the Bible actually very clearly tells us we are. And we'll explore that now. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, what is an oddball? I use the term. Many of you sort of have a general idea. Of course, you want to, know, want to get a scholarly academic definition of the precise meaning of any term. Where do you go? The Urban Dictionary. <laughs> the Urban Dictionary says this, oddball, an eccentric individual, irregular, instigator, jinx, not part of the group, out of the ordinary, non-standard, outcast, singled out, one of a kind, out of the blue, out of nowhere, outsider, radical. That's how the Urban Dictionary tries to describe the common usage of what people use the word oddball, what they mean. Now, if we want to get a little more academic and proper, let's go to Merriam-Webster's, and it says, a person who behaves in a strange or unusual way. That's an oddball. Listen to that one really carefully. Because the thesis I submit to you this morning is that God's word would propose to us and would assert that we are oddballs. And if I were doing a, a paraphrase uh, of, the, of this passage, I would actually use the word oddball and a few other places in the New Testament, simply because in modern vocabulary it conveys the concept of the original Greek terms very well. 
An oddball is a person who behaves in a strange or unusual way. So I would submit to you that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you know him and he's the Lord of your life, and you've bowed your knee and humbled your heart and given him control of your life and said, I submit to you the lordship of my life, you're in charge of my life, not me, if you've done that, or you are contemplating doing that, or you're on a journey toward that, I would submit that once you've made that connection with him, that submission to his lordship in your life, that at that moment in time and for all time forward, you will, in the eyes of the world around you, the culture in which you move and live and work and go to school and interact and socialize, in the midst of that culture that you live in, if you have that relationship with Christ established and you're his son or his daughter, I would submit that you are a person who in the minds and the eyes and the views and the feelings of many in the culture around you, you'll be viewed as a person who behaves in a strange or unusual way. I would submit that that's the case. So let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians 4. If you have your Bibles or your smartphone or your iPad, whatever you have, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let's look at that together. And I'm going to break this into three parts. The first one's going to be verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to assert to you that when Paul gets into this topic in verses 4, 1, and 2, he is telling us that marching to the beat of a different drummer will make you seem odd within our culture. I've never been in a marching band, uh, but I've seen a few perform. And I remember actually recently in Tanzania, some students from one of our schools were uh, in a marching band, and they were at a special uh, celebration for International Albinism Day, and they had these beautifully dressed kids, and they had drums, and it was like a military-style marching band. And they had the drum beat going, and they were all marching in a synchronous to the, the lead drummer. And, you know, everyone moved a certain way. All the instruments played in sync. It was beautiful to watch. But I got to thinking, what if some kid, another kid with a, a, a different drum, randomly started playing a different beat? Really, in the middle of it. Like, they're, they're going straight down this pathway. The media is there. We're doing this big grand opening ceremony. It's all beautiful. It's all well-timed. Could you imagine if some kid grabbed a drum and just started randomly playing a completely different beat and just kept marching to an alternate beat? How that thing would have panned out? It would have looked really weird. There would have been confusion. There would have been, there would have been like, what's with this kid marching to... A, why is he playing a different beat? And B, why is he marching to this different beat that he's playing? He would have been considered an oddball, right? And I would submit to you that as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who claim to submit to his lordship and to serve him and be in connection and relationship with him, we will be marching to a different beat and we'll be beating a different beat on our drum. And that marching to a different beat will make us seem odd within the culture we live in today. Here's one really cool thing. When I started delving into 1 Thessalonians 4, and the the, the Greco-Roman Empire at the time of the Apostle Paul, roughly around 2,000 years ago, Here's the amazing thing that I find really helpful to us. That culture was profoundly similar in a number of ways to ours today. I would say probably 100 years ago in Canada, that would not have been the case so much. We would have had a predominantly Judeo-Christian culture in North America and Europe 100, 150 years ago, maybe even 50 years ago in Canada, where most of the cultural norms and mores, the British common law that structures what's right and wrong, what we can and can't do in our society, would be predominantly influenced. Most people would have attended a church they would have affiliated themselves at least nominally with some denomination of a Christian faith. For a variety of reasons, culturally, ethnically, and so on, our culture has shifted in this country. Whether we like it or not, feel good about it or not, have opinions about it or not, that is the reality we live in, right? We are an entirely post-Christian culture. Get comfortable with it. 
stop longing for the days when we have all of the Christian wrapping because they're gone largely and they aren't coming back. That's my prediction. We are in a postmodern, post-Christian culture. What's interesting about that is the words of the New Testament are particularly and uniquely more applicable to us than they were 50 or 100 years ago. Because the culture in which the Apostle Paul wrote these letters, his epistles, largely from jail, was a post-Christian, pagan, in the truest and most literal sense of the word, pagan culture. What is pagan? It means the worship of alternate gods and deities. It means not being affixed to any moral code such as the Ten Commandments. The Roman Empire at the time of the Apostle Paul was in a state of moral confusion, moral relativism, moral decay, where anything went. If it felt good, you could do it. That was the marching order of the day. That was kind of uh, the milieu. That was kind of the feeling, the vibe in much of the Roman Empire. And it was actually sanctioned by the state. You watch, uh, look at New Testament history. Guys like Caligula, look at how they live their lives. He could do whatever he want. Hedonism and self-satisfaction, self-aggrandizement, self, um, self-promotion. Self-satisfaction was the order of the day. And so Paul writes to the Thessalonians, these words in verses 1 and 2. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God, as we have taught you. Quite a radical concept in this culture. Because you're living in a way that pleases who? He doesn't say live in a way that pleases yourself. He says live in a way that pleases God, as we've taught you. You live this way already. He gives them credit for that. And we encourage you to do so even more, for you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Let's look carefully at verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. It's the seventh time in the letter he uses the term brothers and sisters. To be fair, in the original, he doesn't use the word sisters. He uses brother. But it, we, we expand upon it to say, obviously, he includes all people. So the concept was the family of God. When he talked about brothers, it was generic. It was the idea of the people of God. But this concept of brothers and sisters comes up seven times in this letter already. In other words, this term is a term of warmth. It's a term of pastoral care. It's the creating of a context for hard words that are coming. I want you to really hear this importantly, that when you're going to share hard words that are countercultural, when you're going to spell out God's truth and it's going to be difficult to take and hard to stomach and go against the grain and be tough to take, when it will upset some and cause others to disagree, there's a way to do it. And Paul's expert at it here. He knows he's about to spell out some stuff in 3 to 8 here that's going to ruffle some feathers get some proverbial hackles up. But what does he do? He creates a context. In other words, the scriptures here are helping us to understand how critical it is to set the tone within the family of God and in relation to how we present God's truth in the culture we live in. Look at this. He asks and urges them in verses 4-1. If you look at Philemon, the tiny little letter in the New Testament, verse 9 it says, in Philemon the same Greek word is used. He says, in Philemon 9 he says, but because of your love I prefer simply to ask you Consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Jesus. In other words, the concept in the original language here in 4.1 is, it's like, come on now, guys, please. I'm trying to be sensitive. I'm trying to be open to you guys. I know this is going to be tough, what I'm going to say. I appreciate it's not going to be hard. To, to, it's going to be hard to pull off. I'm going to give you some, some callings here, some invitations to behave and think differently that I know aren't going to go down well. They're going to be really difficult. I appreciate that. I'm sensitive to that. There's nothing simple about what I'm about to unfold here. And I'm asking you as a dear friend and as a brother to humbly consider what I'm about to say. That's what he's saying in 4.1. I'm with you in this. I struggle with this too. 
This isn't any easier for me just because I happen to be the one presenting it here this morning. doesn't mean I've got it all figured out and it's super easy for me to accept or to understand or to live. He's not laying down the law in the traditional way that we would use that phrase. He is going to give them some things that are very clearly requirements from God. And he doesn't mince words about that in 3 to 8. But he sets them up. He's setting them up to better grasp what it would look like in society and culture to please God as they claim to love them, him among those who don't know him. In other words, he says, if you're wanting to make an impact in the culture you live in, here are some key areas you'll need to focus on and focus the efforts of your life on. So here's the point, guys. When you're going to deliver some hard truth, parents that are here, to your kids, when you're going to deliver some challenging things to another believer, a friend, or even if you're going to speak up in a context of people who don't know the Lord, and you're going to try and represent your Christian faith somehow, you're going to represent an idea that you know is going to run completely counter to everything the culture believes in, and you're, going to, you're looking for that perfect moment to raise it, to know how to raise it, please take some effort to set it up. Set it up with a foundation of love. Set it up with a foundation of gentle relationship. Set it up with a foundation of compassion. And set it up with, I know this is hard. I know what I'm about to say is unpopular. And I know what I'm about to say is difficult. Because the odds are higher that when you get to the hard words, you might gain a different hearing. Do you think? Doesn't mean that everyone's going to like it. Or it's going to go down super well or that you'll be agreed with. But it does mean that at least the hearer knows you care about them enough to take the time to make sure you enter into relationship with them first. And so marching to the beat of a different drummer will make you seem odd within the culture. Let's go to the second point in verses 3 through 8. And that is this. When honor, instead of self-satisfaction, drives your sexuality, you will seem odd within our culture. When honor, instead of self-satisfaction, drives your sexuality, you will seem odd within our culture. And so you can see now why Paul's taken so much time in 1 and 2. Once you, once you read these verses 3 to 8, you're going to get why he's been trying to soften them up, say, guys, listen to me, you're, we're in this together. There's not going to be some easy things I'm talking about here. I'm coming to you humbly as a fellow brother. With an open mind and heart, please hear what I have to say, because this is not, these aren't suggestions. You know, it's like one guy said, the Bible doesn't have ten suggestions, it has ten commandments. And these aren't suggestions. And I wish it were. I wish I could somehow um, you know, dilute this a little bit, or make it suggestions, or optional. The text doesn't give me the permission, and I've learned in my biblical studies major well enough to know that I, the text has to drive the day, not me. My job is to be faithful to the text. So if you don't like how I say it or what I say, I sincerely apologize if I've given you cause for offense. But if you're offended by the text, I won't apologize for that because that's not my role. Verses 3 through 8. God's will is for you to be holy, to stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor. Not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all such sins. 
as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God, who gives us his Holy Spirit to you. So now you see why he was softening the ground in one and two, don't you? He's coming down pretty hard here now. He's laying it out, laying it bare, being honest, being forthright, being true. And what does he say? He says, to be holy. You remember that? And this business of holiness has always been confusing to me. Like, what, what in the world does that really mean? What does holy mean? He says, verse 3, to be holy. Well, Leviticus is the best place to look to understand holiness because it's an Old Testament concept the apostle jumps on. 11.44 of Leviticus defines holiness this way. It says, For I am the Lord your God. You must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. So you do not defile yourselves with any of these small animals that scurry along the ground. In the case of Leviticus, when Moses was talking to God's people, he says, if you want to understand what it means to be holy, it means to consecrate yourselves. Don't defile yourselves with any of these small animals that scurry along the ground. In other words, cling to God. Realize you are his possession. And we'll get into that in a moment. Make sure, realizing your heart of hearts, guys, that you're God's. If you've said a prayer at some point in your life and continue to say prayers every day, that somehow call out to him to be your Lord and recognize him as your father. In those moments, you're consecrating yourself. In those moments, you're seeking holiness. In those moments, you're recognizing that you are his possession. 1 Corinthians 6 is very interesting as it relates to this passage. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20 say this, our, belong, our body, it makes the point that our body belongs not to ourselves, but to God. Remember, have any of you ever heard this in the culture? It's your body, you can do what you want with it? Anybody ever heard that idea? Okay, let's see how that jives with 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? and is given you by God, listen to it, you do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. So does that jive with the cultural assertion that it's your body, you can do what you want with it? It flies in the face, smack in the face of it, doesn't it? If I read the text carefully, it's not my body. It's his, right? First, uh, Psalm 139, in my mother's womb you wove me together, I am fearfully, wonderfully made. So he wove me together. He created me. He, he is my maker. My body belongs to him. My body is a temple in which he resides. And so let's go over to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 get into this. It says, The Lord God calls, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last the man exclaimed, this, was, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and listen carefully, and the two are united into one. Sometimes people get involved in our culture, in our world, in sexual relationships, longing to find acceptance. They're longing to find acceptance, love, and friendship they feel is missing in their life. They're longing to satisfy and satiate an emptiness, a brokenness, a need for intimacy, a need for love. 
I need to be held. I need to be cared for. And as fellow believers, can we seek to provide an environment in which these relational needs can be met in more healthy ways? New Testament scholar Michael Holmes remarks this. In the last few years, more than a few cultural observers, these are sociologists, people who watch what's going on in our culture, he's making the point here, people who are studying what's going down in our culture have noticed that secular culture is, for various pragmatic or practical reasons, seriously reconsidering the value of the kind of sexual ethic proclaimed by the church. So what he's saying is the sociologists, the psychologists, the cultural observers, the analysts are looking at the kind of sexual ethic the church has proclaimed, which emerged from the pages of scripture, and it's both ironic and tragic that at such a moment, many denominations or segments of the church have lost their ability and their authority to speak clearly on sexual matters. The reasons the church gives for not wanting to speak clearly and not wanting to speak frankly on sexual matters are these, and there's some good reasons. Why is the church reticent to take on sexual matters? The scripture is not reticent, by the way. You know, people always talk and worry about violence and sexual content on TV, and it is a concern, but the Bible's full of both. <laughs> All kinds of violence in the Old Testament and sexual issues and ethics are discussed widely throughout scripture. Read it and you'll find out. But he's saying that the church has been reticent to talk about the sexual ethic of the Bible. And there's some reasons why the church has coiled back and not wanted to talk about it much. So I get to do this here today, Brad. Hope you appreciate it. You owe me one. Why do we recoil? Because there's confusion about some of these complex topics. Human sexuality is a complex topic. There's hypocrisy around it where we might judge someone for a certain behavior, a certain sexual behavior, and we might condemn them. And so because some churches at some points in history have had a history of being condemnatory or judgmental or unkind or impatient or uh, not open, guilty as charged, right? The church has done poorly at that at various points in its history and still at times does poorly. So since we have been hypocritical at times, since we've been confused at times, since there's been scandals in the church with televangelists having affairs, since our culture is moving a certain way and everyone wants to live together and everyone wants to have extramarital sex and premarital sex and, and anything kind of is normal now and commonplace, since all of that's true, since we have been hypocritical, since we have been at, at times unkind, since we have been confused, since there's been scandals and we haven't practiced what we preached, and since there's, we, we need to accommodate the complexities of our, of our post-Christian pagan culture, because that's what it is. Let's get real. That's the culture we all live in. I think you guys would all agree to that. Therefore, let's just recoil and put a lid on it and not talk about it. Right? That's been the approach many times. And so, the reasons are there. But I would submit to you that this, uh, this author says, the reasons are less important than the consequences. So the reasons why we don't want to deal with these difficult sexual ethics and these difficult issues that verses 3 to 8 outline are good. There's re- lots of good reasons why we could just forget about talking about this and I'll go home, right? But, he says, by not talking about these things and dealing with these things, there are consequences. And the loss of ability to speak not only prophetically, but also pastorally to people seeking an alternative to the sexual confusion and emptiness of contemporary culture. There is a sexual confusion and an emptiness that is prevalent in contemporary culture. Just turn on the TV for 10 minutes and you'll see it in the advertising. 
You'll see it in the shows that are on at primetime. You'll see that when the Ashley Madison website was hacked, a multi-million dollar Canadian business based in Toronto that was promoting people to engage in extramarital affairs. And when the hack happened and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of names came out, among them were people of faith. It indicated that in their profiles. And so here, we're in a culture that's sexually confused. Why? Because we're in a culture that's morally confused. Because, you see, sex is no different than any other part of morality and ethics, right? It's just one segment of a bigger picture. When there is no sense of grounding, when there's no sense of any stability, it's all up for grabs. Paul comments in 4.8, the things he says in chapter 4, verse 8, are transcultural. They come from God. So if that's true, the specifics of a culture are not relevant. So you can't take this stuff and say, well, that was only relevant for the first century Christians in Thessalonica. Because he says, no, no, 4.8, these things come from God. So sexual ethics in the Bible transcend culture. So it doesn't become okay because we're in a different cultural dynamic. Because you know what? All the sexual behaviors that are going on today and all the sexual tendencies that are active in our culture here in North America, guess what? It was exactly the same set of behaviors that were going on in the first century Greco-Roman Empire. Study that point in history. So everything's completely applicable. The tendency of both sociology and psychology is to evaluate behaviors based on whether they are healthy or unhealthy to have negative social consequences. So without God and his truth, this becomes the replacement authority. Is it socially healthy? Is it, is it psychologically causing you distress? So if it doesn't cause you psychological distress, it's okay. That becomes the measuring rod by which we determine if a behavior or a choice or a life or an issue is problematic. If it's not socially unhealthy or psychologically distressful, then it's not a problem. So you see what we've done is the psychologists have become the replacement authority. And I speak with someone with a master's in psychology. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the Bible of Psychiatry, published by the American Psychiatric Association, is a catalog that a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist would use if you presented to him or her with a psychological problem. And they would look up this catalog and they would say, based on the symptoms you present with and the issues you have, you have psychological disorder X. And that's what they'd write, and they'd prescribe medications on that or prescribe treatment or therapy based on that. I study that manual. I read it from beginning to end in my master's program. And it's interesting, if you study the publication of that manual from the 50s to the present day, how various things have become and not become psychological disorders. It was the considered academic opinion of highly educated psychiatrists that certain sexual behaviors were psychopathologies, were illnesses. To engage in them meant you had a mental disability. But then years later, they would revise the latest edition of the manual that psychiatrists use, and it wasn't anymore. It stopped becoming one. Literally, I'd read various editions. Why? Because that was the Bible, right? So if you don't have a, a fixed authority like the scripture, then you have to go to something like DSM to determine what's right or wrong, good or bad. And guess what? All the psychiatrists get together and periodically change their minds about it and vote on it, and they raise their hands, and a majority opinion determines which behaviors are good, which ones are illnesses, and which ones aren't. So as soon as you don't have God's authority, you have to come up with a different authority to run your life and to run a culture and to run a society on, don't you? Right? And so, at one time, our laws said that people who cohabitated and lived together before marriage did not have the legal status of a married couple. For tax reasons, for... Uh, for reasons of uh, compensation and social programs, they were not categorized that way. Now they are. 
someone at some point got up one morning and made that decision, didn't they? They said this will now become legally equivalent to a marriage. As opposed to yesterday when it was bad and wrong, it wasn't. But now it is. You see how these shifts keep happening? Right? And, you know, now polygamy is wrong. What will happen 10 years or 20 years or 30 years from now? Will that become okay? What about the age of consent? Will that change? My point is that when there is no external authority except a psychiatric manual that a group of psychiatrists get to vote on periodically, or pop culture, or popular opinion, when that becomes the basis upon which you decide your sexual ethics, can you see where the culture is headed? That's what happened in the Greco-Roman Empire. Marrying those who don't know God, if you know and love Jesus. Sorry, young people, I'm going to tell you this. And those of you who may not know Christ, and those of you who do, there's a lot to be said in Scripture about putting your life together with someone who knows Christ. If you know Jesus and he's important to you, I'm just going to put it out there. You shouldn't be marrying someone who doesn't. Sorry if you don't like that, and that may be unpopular just now, because that's how I read the Scripture. Maybe I'm reading it wrong, but that's how I read it. And God wants you to be faithful to your sexuality until you're married. And once you're married, he wants you to express and enjoy your sexuality in the confines and the freedom of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Can I get any clearer than that? The scripture is that clear. And so when honor instead of self-satisfaction drive your sexuality, you will seem odd within our culture. you agree with that? Because our culture is all about if it feels good, do it. Self-satisfaction. As long as it's not bothering anybody else and it, and it does it for you, go for it. Scripture doesn't say that. Last point. When generosity, service, and loyalty drive your relationships, you will seem odd within our culture. When generosity, service, and loyalty drive your relationships, you will seem odd within our culture verses 9 to 12, but we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other, for God himself has taught you to love one another. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers throughout Macedonia. Even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. Make it your goal in life to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live and will not need to depend on others, and you will not need to depend on others. Verse 10, we're urged to love the community of faith. So those of you who are in life groups, maybe if you're not, it doesn't matter. I don't, it doesn't matter so much. But I hope you're having a place, if you're a believer in Jesus, I hope you have a place where you can be connected to other believers, and you can receive the support you need, express the love you need to express, and be taken care of by the love you need to support you. It's our place of support and strength. So fellowship, connection with those who know Jesus, walking hand in hand, side by side on the journey of faith with someone who knows and loves Jesus in this post-Christian world is absolutely central, guys. Without it, we're lost. It's our resource. It's like the resource tent. Think of yourself in a, as on a, a war line. You know, we're in a war, and we're, we're, we're in a post-Christian culture that's hostile to God and his truth. And we're, we're in a culture that doesn't make a lot of room for making someone else lord of your life because you're supposed to be lord of your life. You're supposed to be master of your own destiny, captain of your own ship. That's the drumbeat of the culture, right? Self-advancement, self-finding yourself, advancing yourself, satisfying yourself. When we have a whole culture that runs against the stream of all that, we're marching to the beat of this different drum. We're these oddballs marching down with a different drummer. 
we need to have a place to give us strength. So think of the First or Second World War. They would have these resource tents. And I know my dad, my family is Salvation Army background. And they would actually have coffee and, and donuts. And they would have prayer. And they would have these resource tents that the soldiers could go to when they were tired and hungry. And they needed a place to get refurbished and to get encouraged and to rejuvenate and to get a respite. And I look at the church that way. I look at fellowship that way. I look at connection with other believers, friends in Christ that way. They are your place to get strength and, ref- and, and, and refinement and encouragement and, re- and nourishment as, you, as we all face together a world that is increasingly hostile to God. And so, in chapter 5, verse 14, the apostle says, Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, be patient with everyone. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. So the bigger point here is not, you know, he talks about working with your hands and don't depend on anybody. But the bigger point here, some of those comments were probably particular to a situation going on in uh, that province, in that area at that time. But the bigger point of this section here in verses 9 through 12 is that it is true universally and is applicable. And that is this, that our time, our effort, our focus, our money, our jobs, our possessions... The acquisition and use of these must be focused on the reality of the fact that we are owned by another. We are his possession. We are owned by another. Psalm 24.1 Just like our lives are holy, our lives belong to another. We serve at the pleasure of the king of the universe. He is the master of our destiny, the captain of our ship. And just like we belong to him, so do all the things we have, our career, our education, our finances, whatever it is that's at our disposal, our time, our prayers, our love, they're really his. And so the point of 9 to 12 is when generosity, service, and loyalty drive your relationships, you will seem odd within our culture. People will wonder, like, why are you spending so much time serving in our community? Why are you being so kind to me? Why are you giving so much of who you are and what you have to help others? Why not just climb the corporate ladder? Why not get another car? Why not buy a bigger house? Why not just satisfy whatever your latest interest is more? Why care about others so much? We want the culture around us to be puzzled about that, right? That we're that kind of people, that we're those kind of oddballs. As we close, let's consider what 1 Peter, the last slide here, let's consider what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and this is the King James Version. I chose it typically. I don't read the King James usually, but I chose this particular verse to make my point in closing. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why did all of the translations, if you've got the NIV, the New Living Translation, the New American Standard, every other translation got rid of this word peculiar. And the reason they got rid of it wasn't because they were saying that King James mistranslated it. It's just not a word commonly used in English language very much today. In, the, in the King James English in 1600, peculiar had a different meaning. I do a lot of commercial real estate work, and I, I also read a lot of corporate legal documents. And the word peculiar occurs in corporate legal work and in commercial real estate. If I buy an office building, and there are some items in the, in the parquet of that building that come in the deal of buying the building, the legal document will say these items are peculiar to this building. It doesn't mean the items are peculiar, they're not odd-looking items. But it means the items are peculiar to that building. What does it mean? They are part and parcel of and owned with and under the control and ownership and belong to that building. 
So we are a peculiar people. We are a people owned by God, Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You're not your own. You're not the master. You're not the captain. You're the servant. You're the son. You're the daughter. You're the friend. We serve a king. We serve a, serve a lord. That's the central deal, guys. The lordship of Jesus. And so, in 1 Peter 2.9 it's the idea of being someone's possession. To have being surrounded by someone. Being an owned people. Not in the sense of a, a, when we think of that word, we think of it badly, like a slave who abuses, or a slave owner who abuses a slave. That's not the idea. It's a beautiful kind of ownership. It's like when a husband and wife become one. That, that imagery in Genesis 2 of marriage is our imagery with Jesus. When we come to know him, he is in us. And we are part of his body. And in that sense, we are in his body. And so we are a peculiar people. And so as I close, I want to ask you a question. Are you willing to face and engage our culture? Am I willing this morning, this afternoon, to face and engage the culture that I live in? Knowing that if you're really serious, and I'm really serious about a walk with God, that you will be in, and are in fact, already being considered an oddball. So, if you're willing to engage our culture as someone who knows God and loves him, you will be considered an oddball. Or, this morning, is it possible that we're committed to banishing any trace of peculiarity in a commitment to always blend in and never rock the boat? And that's what I said earlier in the message. I was thankful for that picture you saw the first time where I had the kid with the white hair with the big class. I never had the chance of blending in. I, I, I begged and dreamed. I actually asked God if I could blend in sometimes as a kid. I just couldn't. I, like I said, I would have had to have a wig and makeup and everything else. I couldn't blend in. It wasn't an option. I didn't get to decide that I couldn't blend in in those ways physically. And so I was considered an oddball by my appearance, immutably, out of my control. And God taught me over the last decade or so that, Peter, you can't blend in. You will be considered odd, and you can't change that. And that became a spiritual metaphor for me. Here's the problem. We do have a chance to blend in as believers. Right? We can behave like our culture. We can live like our culture. We can have the value system of our culture. Instead of living a life of being committed to never rocking the boat in a culture that sends us the loud message to keep quiet and remain silent about the fact that we truly and proudly belong to another. We should choose today to do as Peter did 2,000 years ago and get back out of the boat and walk towards Jesus. Many of us are committed to not rocking the boat. Sometimes that's by personality. We don't like to be disruptive. Sometimes it's because of unpopularity. We want acceptance. That's normal. I want to be accepted just like you do. But if you are his possession, if you're his child, you will rock the boat. And so rather than being preoccupied with not rocking the boat and trying to go incognito in our culture so no one will even know that he's important in your life, let's close by looking at Matthew 14. And then I'll ask the worship team to come. Matthew 14, you know the story. Shortly, Matthew 14, 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And he cried out for fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Really, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. 
and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So here, Peter stops his commitment to not rocking the boat, and he decides instead to do something much more beautiful, much more praiseworthy. He decides to get out of the boat and walk toward Jesus. The stuff I've shared this morning wasn't easy for me to say, and it wouldn't be popular in much of the culture to be swimming upstream, but it's, it's his word, it's his truth, and it's as challenging for me to hear and receive as it is for you to hear and receive. But here's the good news. If you're willing to be the oddball, if you're willing to say, God, I understand the world won't always understand me, they won't always accept me, but I'm more committed to following you, to following you, Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus because he is the Lord of my life. And tonight, today, together, as we close this service and think of these, this challenge of being an oddball, what does that mean for you, specifically in your life, to follow Jesus? What's it look like? I come to you in a spirit of kindness and compassion because I've navigated many troubles in my 50 years. I just turned 50. And I navigate many more in the balance of my life, I'm sure. Many challenges, many temptations. Some I've succeeded with and some I haven't. But I know you're here today and you're probably in the same position. So if you know Jesus, ask him this, this morning to, to give you the strength to be an oddball, to be someone who's willing to stand for him. What, whatever that looks like in your life, it'll look different for you than it does for me to kindly and compassionately connect with the world around you that's lost, that's confused, that's broken. The world is lost, guys. The world is truly lost. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what's right and what's wrong. Just turn on the TV for half an hour and you'll see the confusion. Watch social media. It's all about satisfying yourself. It's all about being your own God. If there's ever a time when the Christian message is relevant, it's today in this post-Christian pagan culture. And for you today, make that choice to give your heart in a new way to following Jesus. Thank you.